I'll begin reading through some of these questions. <clears throat> and if you have other questions or comments, please just raise your hand. The big question. What persuades the mind to give up the pleasures and pains of hunger for mind objects, for role-taking, drama production, etc.? What makes it say, enough of mind trips, I'd rather watch my breath or my feet? (laughs) I think what persuades the mind to uh, give it up, uh, adjust what you've been doing for a few months. Mostly, people who have not and develop the practice of observation have no idea that the mind is so engaged in the production of these mind states and concepts and projections. And so when we come to sit and watch the mind, just the awareness that this is happening so often over and over and over again The first step is realizing that it's basically fruitless, that they're not going anyplace. You know, we just go around and around in circles. Don't underestimate the value of understanding that, because most people don't. I mean, most, most people place this tremendous value on all of this mind stuff. So seeing the emptiness and the endlessness of it is a good first step. Then it's really a question of employing various strategies in terms of disengaging. The attitude of mind toward it is very important, toward this endless proliferation of mind thoughts and images. Aversion or judgment about them don't help. In fact, it just keeps feeding. It is possible to act from a place of strength in the mind. When you've seen the same scenario, the same image, the same pattern for the 10 millionth time, It's possible in the mind to just, the sort of wisdom, cut it enough. But do it with humor, not with aversion. Another approach, or approaching it from another angle, is realizing that the antidote to discursiveness is one-pointedness. And so just to, to focus your effort on the development of a strong concentration, a strong one-pointedness. For example, in the breath, you might, in the sitting, you might just spend some time counting the breath. Or try to get to five. And just all your effort to get to, get to three. <laughs> and back again, and back again. The counting is just... It's a little bit of an emphasis on the concentration side of things. 
you might at times use the metta not only to soften the mind, but actually as a concentration meditation, which it is, if the mind is just getting lost over and over and over again in thought. Just to do those things or try to remember those ways which you've used in your practice, which actually helps the concentration build, because that will calm the mind. So there's cutting, there's concentration. There's one other attitude that comes to mind now, which can be extremely insightful and deepening of one's understanding. And that is to look very directly at the nature of the thought itself, the thought as a phenomenon. with the unspoken question in the mind, to whom does this belong? Because what feeds the thought and the dramas and all the stuff of our mind is our identification with them. We get caught, we get seduced in one way or another. We take them to be who we are, we take them to be self. Look very directly at this thought production. What is a thought? What is it? To see that there is no one behind it. It does not belong to anybody. And so, arousing the investigation factor at the time turns what could be a liability in practice to actually a great source of understanding. One of the questions, which is later down in the pile, somebody wrote, what is a thought? We're all experts. How many have you observed? What is it? That's a great koan. What is a thought? Just that question in the mind immediately brings interest to the process. And so, rather than getting lost in the content of them, we begin to look at the phenomenon of it. It's tremendously important because our lives are ruled and dominated by the thought process. This week especially, as you probably have or will notice there probably is even more of a generation of thoughts than usual, just in terms of future and planning and wondering what's going to happen next. Use this time, rather than fight with it or struggle with it, whenever the mind is creating these thoughts or plans or futurizing, Take a careful, what is it? And just to see over and over again the difference in one's being between being lost in thought and aware of thought as just this empty bubble. It's a totally different way of living.
and it has tremendous implication for our lives outside of retreat as well. Why does the mind cling to aversion? One would think it would have the sense to let go rather than to tighten around it and become obsessive. Why does the mind cling to aversion? One of the key factors in the development of wisdom is something which the Buddha called (coughs) wise attention. It's just bringing to each situation not a superficial attention. In other words, to simply know that aversion is present in the mind. It's not enough. Because we could know that aversion is present and still be totally identified with it or totally reactive to it. And so it's not enough simply to recognize, oh yes, aversion is here. There has to be another quality of our attention, a wise attention, which is both recognizing the presence of the aversion or greed or whatever state it is, and also observing or understanding very clearly what the attitude of the mind is towards it. Why do we cling to aversion? We cling either because we're justifying it in some way. I should feel aversion because so-and-so did this and this and this. and We justify our anger, we justify our suffering. Or we get locked into the aversion because we're condemning it. We don't like it, we want to get rid of it. In either way, either by justifying it or by condemning it, we feed it. The wise attention will allow us to see what the attitude is in the mind toward it. The concept of letting go although in some way is a helpful reminder, also has a certain danger to it. And sometimes I feel people get more in a struggle when that idea of letting go is in the mind. Because letting go implies some kind of active decision. You know, just let go. But it doesn't seem to work like that. I think it's more subtle, or we have to look in a more subtle way. Letting be might be a more useful reminder than letting go. Just letting it be with a wise attention to the relationship to it. Also with aversion, actually with any kind of afflictive emotion, emotion which causes suffering in the mind, 
when it simply doesn't pass away when noted, when it really seems quite lodged in the mind, in addition to noticing the relationship to it, also begin to see if there are some other components that are there which are not being acknowledged. For example, with anger or aversion, there might be justification or self-righteousness or feeling of vengeance or whatever is, is coming up in the mind. If those go unnoted, they will be the sources of the aversion to continue because we're not aware of them. So you have to look carefully at all the components of what might be present. Likewise, when there's a strong desire in the mind, noting desire, 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 and it's just as strong as ever. Take a look at what else is there. Maybe there's a quality of excitement or enjoyment. could be any one of a number of different mind states that are associated. Each one of those should be seen clearly. And often when it's dissected in this way, when the experience is opened up, then the whole thing washes through. What about God? Buddhists don't seem to speak of God. I know all is rising and passing phenomena, but from where to where? Since when, until when, and how? (laughs) 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 It's in some way a difficult question because People have <laughs> people have very different ideas or meanings when they use the word God, and so it's mm, it's important to know actually what a person means when they use that word. In the Buddha's teaching, there is not the idea of a creator God who started it all and who caused everything to be. There is the idea both of there being the truth or the law, the Dharma. And so if God is understood as that, as the truth or the ultimate reality of things, then there's a correspondence. Or if God is understood as the unconditioned, the unborn, the unformed, then there's a correspondence with Nibbana. But there's not the same idea as the West, as the usual or conventional Western notion of this being someplace up in the sky who created it all.
there is, <laughs> my mind was just off on a little journey. There is the <clears throat> the understanding, as I've mentioned a few times, of many realms of existence, and in the higher realms, these Brahma realms, uh, often beings in these realms take themselves to be what we in the West would think of as God, these very powerful beings who don't see any end to their life, who have great, these great powers of mind. And in many of the suttas, the Buddha is often uh, dialoguing with these, what they're called Brahma gods. They're, they're at the pinnacle of the cosmological scale, reminding them that they also are part of this wheel of samsara and for the time are enjoying that status. But it is not enlightenment, it is not freedom. So there's that understanding of gods, you know, or higher beings in the Buddhist, in the Buddhist teaching. He didn't talk about the beginning of things. In fact, he said that samsara had no beginning. And enlisting the things that if we thought about too much would drive us crazy, thinking about the, the origin of the universe was one of them. So just take care. <laughs> yeah. No. Enlightenment can take place in the human realm and many of the higher realms, the deva realms. There are Brahma realms of form and then also Brahma realms of formlessness. It's interesting that the, f uh, the first two people that the Buddha wanted to teach after his enlightenment were two of his former teachers who had taught the jhanas, the, the concentration practices, which led to those formless realms. And he was unable to teach them because they had recently died and been reborn in them. But there's no opportunity there to hear or practice the, the Dharma. There is in the Brahma realms of form. <clears throat> the reason it's said that the human realm is so conducive to practice is because of this mix of suffering and pleasantness. Beings who are reborn in the higher realms, it's said, if they don't have a background in practice, are not highly motivated, you know, because they're just enjoying themselves too much. If there is a strong background in practice, 
then it actually is said that realization comes very quickly because the mind-body is very, very refined. You know, the consciousness is very refined, the intelligence is refined, the physical form is very refined. But what it takes is that background, that parame of meditation practice. There are many stories, both from the Buddhist time up until today, of people who practiced you know, in this life, were reborn in either the Deva or Brahma realms, and became enlightened there. So the important thing is just to, to create a strong practice and let our karma unfold as it does. At the moment of full enlightenment, the death of somebody who is fully enlightened, that is called parinibbana, which is like the final or ultimate nibbana. And that is um, well, a nice image for it is like a snowflake dissolving into the pure air. Or A candle going out into what remains is Nibbana. Now this, to many people, does not sound appealing. <laughs> Which is why we find ourselves on the wheel for so long. It's <laughs> I think it probably has been mentioned at some point in the retreat that the reason enlightenment happens in stages is because the mind cannot open to the fullness of the truth of suffering all at once. It's like too much. And so we just have to open to it gradually as we gain strength of mind because the understanding that that actually is a release into freedom comes from the depth of realization that that which we are so attached to this mind-body process is really just it's just suffering arising and passing away but well, we don't see that so clearly. Although, maybe you've been getting glimpses <laughs> from time to time. You know, that just this, the endlessness of this process is dukkha. And the ending of it is freedom. What's very difficult and very subtle is our desire, that strong desire in the mind to be present at our funerals. Right? It's like we want to be there to enjoy this state. 
But it's not like that. It's more subtle than that. It's seeing that the consciousness itself is part of this samsaric arising and passing away. That's why often when the Buddha was asked just the bottom line of his teaching, you know, just to just the very essence of it, you would say, suffering, I teach suffering and the end of suffering. Suffering and the end of suffering. Another subtlety to this, which, I mean, we're talking about just the the very essence of what this whole thing is about. Very hard to grasp with our minds. This will have to be a paraphrase. It's from a poem by Chuang Tzu, the great Taoist sage and poet. And it's a poem about starlight going in search of non-being. There's just this, you know, many lines about how starlight went out and looked for non-being and couldn't see it and listened for non-being and couldn't hear it and tried to feel non-being and couldn't feel it. And the last line of the poem, it's in, actually I think it's in uh, Jack and my book, The Seeking the Heart of Wisdom. The last line of the poem is, Something like, if on top of all this, non-being is, who can comprehend it? That's the mystery. That non-being is. And mostly we think of non-being as isn't. So, if we all practice hard, (laughs) well, this is in the same vein. Why is there any such thing as samsara or conditioned existence and the consequent necessity to strive for liberation? Does the Buddha say anything about the first arising of this whole mess? He doesn't talk about the first arising. He does talk about the forces that keep it going, which is ignorance and craving. Because of ignorance, and ignorance means not comprehending the three characteristics of impermanence, of dukkha, of selflessness. Because of that ignorance, we keep craving. We want things. And it's because of the force of craving that we perform actions, the actions bring results, and we go round and round on this wheel. And so the path of liberation doesn't have to do with going back to understanding the beginning of it, but rather to uproot those forces in the mind which keep it going. And so our task is the purification of the mind 
of ignorance and craving. How do we uproot ignorance? It's very simple. We take a very careful, sustained look at the nature of things, which is just what we're doing day after day, just looking carefully how things are happening. Now, and as the observation gets strong, it becomes so intuitively obvious, very direct. Everything, sights and sounds and smells and sensations and thoughts and emotions and all the dramas, consciousness itself is just arising and passing, arising, passing, arising, passing. We just see that so clearly that the mind becomes purified of grasping for anything. Because we, we are experiencing, it's as if we become this flow of impermanence. As we free the mind from ignorance, there's not the same degree of craving. As we uproot craving, there's not the same actions and karmic results. After these days of silence and aloneness, I feel no urge to renew most of the relationships I had before the retreat. (laughs) Would appreciate your views. Born from long experience, I would advise you not to make any important decisions from this space. Because one has a way of viewing things in this context that may be very different um, than how you'll view things when you leave. Um, And there's really no, there's no guideline for that. Sometimes there is a kind of natural movement towards people with a strong affinity of similar values. You know, just as one's Dharma understanding and practice grows deeper, you may find that you're, you're drawn to people with a similar understanding. But not necessarily, because Another aspect of the practice is really opening to what is good in anybody, in all people. And so you may find that your old friends are just fine and actually become more accepting and more loving. So it's really just to wait and say, I think it's not a question of deciding anything. It's like there's a natural organic unfolding to this path. Are there places or stages in practice where people are more likely to stop practicing intensively or fall away from practice altogether? Like after a three-month retreat. (laughs) 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 We're going to talk a lot in the next two weeks, especially the last week in Integration Week, just about what it's like leaving, you know, a three-month intensive It's difficult. It's very difficult. And so it takes a lot of care and a lot of sensitivity to do it well and to do it gracefully.
And even with all that, some people leave and fall apart. That has never been particularly troublesome to me, the fact that it's difficult. In the years when I was doing a lot of intensive practice in India, every year or so, a year and a half, two years, I would come back to the States. It was terrible. It was just terrible. I was so depressed. You know, I didn't want to come back. I felt like you know, all my love of the practice all was in India and somehow I found myself here. And I remember just sitting, moping around, listening to Bob Dylan, you know, trying to drown my sorrows. <laughs> and it was like that the first time back and the second time back and the third time back. But gradually, making that transition over and over again, gradually the transition seemed to be less and less um, striking, the change. Just from the practice of the transition, it became easier and easier to really see the practice as being quite unified. Sometimes it was an intensive form, sometimes it was just living one's life. And so I really see the difficulty of the transition as being as important a part of the practice as what you're doing here. And it's something we have to go through. It's really the challenges. In some way, it's the times of difficulties which really make us strong. You know, just cruising along and everything going nice and smooth and easy. It's nice. It's pleasant. But there's not necessarily any real growth of understanding in that. And it's the same thing both during retreat and in leaving retreat. Now, you could, you could go for a long time and everything's just nice. The mind may be peaceful and calm. It is nice. (laughs) It it truly is. But it's really when we come up against the difficulties in the mind, when we come to our edge, when we come to our limitations, when we really are in a struggle, that's when we're really strengthening our powers of attention, of mindfulness, of equanimity, of understanding the places or the ways we're getting caught in the possibility uh, of freeing ourselves. Are there ways to cultivate mindful speech? There's one very good way. Be aware of what you're going to say before you open your mouth. (laughs) Note the intention to speak. It is amazing. You know, we're so habitual with our speech and things just come falling right out. It is truly amazing to have enough mindfulness 
even occasionally, to recognize, and it's in the mind beforehand. You know, it may be it may be somewhat subtle if we're in a busy, active situation, but it's there. And just to pay attention to that about to moment, about to speak, and what it's about. It's very, very calming to begin to let go of those things that we're about to say that are useless, which is a lot. You know, there's, there's a lot of what we say that is just, could easily be left unsaid. It feels good. It feels good just to see it in the mind, let it go. And so really right speech has to do with bringing mindfulness to it, bring it to the about-to moment. There's a whole list in the Buddhist teachings of what's right speech and what's wrong speech. Almost everything we talk about is wrong speech. <laughs> anything in the wor- anything of worldly. Uh, what's considered right speech is talk about contentment, talk about renunciation, talk about enlightenment, talk about meditation. And maybe in this crowd, that will go over. <laughs> <laughs> It's not really what most people out there are interested in. And so I think a very key component for us is just to exercise some awareness and some restraint. You know, just just watching it. It's a great practice in terms of bringing the Dhamma into our lives outside. Again, we're going to talk more about it. There's a huge amount of energy, of our, of our energy in life devoted to speech. It's, it's a major part of our lives. And so to bring some attention to it is tremendously helpful. And it, it's a very powerful way of actually living the Dharma, living what we know, living what we've learned. What is the difference between the idi of dukkha and just having a really bad day? If you remember the talk on the idis, which were those, those, those things which we need to bring to completion or fulfillment or perfection. One of them, one of these idis was the understanding or realization of dukkha. Suffering. What's the difference between this idi of dukkha and just having a really bad day? It all depends on how much wisdom is brought to the really bad day. If we're drowning in it, if we're identified with it, we're just swimming in the suffering, there's not much going on in terms of the development of the idi. If we can feel the suffering in whatever way, whether it's in the mind or the body or a situation, if we can open to the suffering, 
and really bring our attention and wise consideration to it, then we can begin to appreciate or, or understand in deeper and deeper levels this truth of suffering. Times of suffering are a tremendous challenge. I mean, they're really, they're really um, wonderful opportunities to just stop and see how this suffering is being created. How are we identified? How are we pushing something away? It's a, it's a wonderful time to arouse the investigation factor. Here are two questions that are related. What about nihilism in practice? If we just note every aspect of our experience, it would seem to dry up the heart. Nothing is mentioned about enjoying the romance of life or with another person. Has Upandita commented on this aspect of being human? Ajahn Chah said, leave the smell at the nose. If we watch a sunset and just note seeing, we miss a very beautiful aspect of life. This practice emphasizes wisdom integrated with compassion. Feeling compassion towards the sunset is inappropriate. So what is the integration between just seeing and appreciating other aspects of the moment? The texts and Asian teachers seem to write this off. For me, the key point of integration between the heart and the mind, what is conventionally called that, although in the Buddhist sense it's really the same phenomenon, is the very, the very beautiful space of silence. and in watching a sunset or in being with a person. If our mind is filled with thoughts and projections and concepts and ideas either about the situation or just about past or future, we're not there. To the degree that the heart is silent, In that silence, there is a non-separation. There is a non-duality. And that's where, that's where the beauty of the practice is. Sometimes, in the effort to develop some silence, it seems dry, it seems effortful. It seems like all this work is going on, seeing, seeing, hearing, smelling, whatever. But all of that is for the purpose of creating this space of silence. So that we can simply be with experience. And that becomes a very heartfelt way of being. We're not cluttering it 
and we're not interfering with it, with all the thought, conceptual uh, production. I don't know whether you've felt this at certain times during these last months, but it's something that comes up for me in a very strong way when I say it. Just the feeling of the deepest connection with things. It's not whether it's about a certain person that might come to mind or about looking at a sunset or the feeling of a movement. When the mind is quiet, there's this wonderful intimacy that's there. And so I see that really as the development of the practice. If, you know, in the course of your Dharma career, you have the opportunity to be with many different teachers and people who have practiced a lot, I think you'll find that they really be... They're not dry. It's <laughs> like the most light, the most connected. Uh, and that's the fruit of the purification of the mind. No, the intimacy itself need not be a hindrance to understanding selflessness. Intimacy, in the sense that I'm using it, doesn't mean a craving or an attachment or an identification with the object. It means... a non-separation. What separates us from things are all the thoughts about it. Our mind is so filled with thoughts and concepts and projections that we don't get close. But when you're just with the breath and just feeling it, or just with a step, just with a movement, that's a very intimate experience. When you can be with a person free of thought. That's a wonderful space. Because it's really, there's just that space of acceptance. You're not thinking, you're not judging, you're not comparing. There's just that space of being there, being open. That's, that's the kind of intimacy that I'm talking about. That is all selfless. There's no one, it's not related to a being to a person to an I. It just is a function of that silence of mind, silence of heart.
It's said that every moment imprints the next one. In the Tibetan tradition, it says that one's rebirth depends on one's mind state in the last moment of the previous life. What about people who die in sleep or altered state of consciousness? The last moment of consciousness is said in all of the traditions, said to be very important. How we live our life plays a very mm, important role in conditioning or determining that last moment of consciousness. And it's said that even if a person dies in one's sleep, that actually just in the moment of dying becomes awake and conscious. That one doesn't die unconscious. Did we talk about the different kinds of karma at the time of death? Um, There's an analogy or a simile which is used to describe that moment of death consciousness. And that is like a herd of, or a a herd of cattle, cows, in a big barn. And when the door is opened to the barn, it's the big, strong, the big, the biggest and strongest one who's going to push its way out and be first out. After that, if there's no, if there's no uh, cow that's the biggest and strongest, then it's the one that most usually goes first out. One is in the habit of it. If there's nobody that's in the habit of going first out, then it's the one that just happens to be by the door. And if nobody, none of the cows happen to just be by the door, then it could be, you know, any of them, a random one. This is used to explain the different kinds of karma acting at the moment of death. What takes precedence or predominance is what is called heavy karma that is either very powerful, wholesome, or unwholesome acts. The powerful, unwholesome ones are killing one's mother or father, or killing an enlightened being, a fully enlightened being, or wounding a Buddha. The fifth was called causing a schism in the order considered a very, not a good thing to do. If we've done any of these things, that karma is going to take precedence at the time of death and result in an unwholesome rebirth. The wholesome states of mind, of heavy karma, are either the attainment of jhana, those very high states of concentration, or any of the stages of enlightenment. So they take precedence. But if none of these are present, if none of these are operative, then it's what's called habitual karma, which takes precedence. And that is that which we've done over and over again in our lives. It's said that at the time of death, what happens is we can get an image in the mind 
called a nimitta or a sign in the mind, a vision in the mind, representing this habitual action. You know, and so if somebody has been, you know, a murderer, they may get a vision of, you know, the weapons they've used. If somebody's been a yogi, they'll see their zafu. (laughs) (laughs) And that habitual karma becomes what conditions the next life, which is why it's so important. And and what we're doing in, in really establishing ourselves in the practice, it becomes the habit of mind. It becomes this very powerful force which arises for us in the moment of death. If there's no habitual karma, then it's proximate karma. It just means what happens to, uh, to be present at that time. It's for this reason that it's suggested, if one is with dying people, that it's helpful to create an atmosphere which reminds them of their own wholesome actions, their own wholesome deeds, so that in their minds, at the time of death, there is a wholesome thought. If there's no proximate karma, then it's just random. Any action that we may have done in the past may come to to the mind at that time. Mm-hmm. Uh, I actually have two related questions to that. One is, um, if a person has, say, attaining an enlightenment, people aren't born enlightened, so, what happens with regard to that when they're, they're is, it, is it lost, or do they just get there faster? No, actually, pe- people are born if certain defilements, okay, laces have been uprooted from the stream of consciousness, then in rebirth, those fetters won't be there. Okay, and the second question is, um, what about maintaining um, life by means like respirators and, and tubal feeding and everything, when a person is in a persistent vegetative state, like you don't have a, a sentient being anymore? Um, of course, this didn't arise in the Buddhist time, so <laughs> uh, my sense is, I know when Mahasi Sayada was dying in Burma, he sort of was a great patriarch of this whole lineage. Uh, this very renowned uh, monk in Burma. Uh, when he was dying, at first he was in the hospital, all kind of hooked up to different machines, and it was decided to unhook him from the machines and just bring him back to the monastery and let the natural course of events happen. Um, there's a very strong view about uh, not committing what we, you know, in the West would call mercy killing. That that is seen uh, as being something which looks wholesome, but actually is disguising an unwholesome and an unhelpful state of mind, which has provoked many, many long discussions. Uh, It's just a very interesting thing to look at. And I think Michelle has talked about it in some of her talks. Kind of look to see our aversion to suffering, which is different than our compassion. These are two very different states. 
often what we do is being motivated by our aversion to it and is not truly a compassionate action. Well, the, the, the beautiful thing about karma is that it's always exactly appropriate. In other words, they had created the karma from this very strong concentration practice. But at that time, the, the teachings of the Buddha were not available. And so, as they did it, there was not the wisdom factor present. It was that very strong concentration, and so there was the karmic fruit. It's not to be seen, I think perhaps sometimes in the West we might view karma as sort of justice being dispensed. It's not so much a dispensing of rewards or punishments. It's just the fruition of certain seeds. This seed is planted, it brings this fruit. And so, if one has attained these hygienic states, then rebirth happens. These are very blissful states. I mean, so in that sense, it's, it's a wholesome, it's a very wholesome rebirth. It doesn't have the opportunity to hear the teachings, and so they'll be back. After a long time. <laughs> There's one little karma story which just illustrates to me the kind of the, the wonderful in- intricacy and appropriateness of things. And this is just one of you know, countless. But it seems like there was uh, this one person, this one man who had offered food to one of the arhants, a fully enlightened being. And then just afterwards, sort of repented for having done that. He thought, you know, why did I do this? It was stupid. And so felt bad that he actually made the offering. The story goes that the karmic results of that little sequence was that for seven lifetimes in a row, he was born as a millionaire, as this very wealthy person. But as the karmic fruit of having regretted doing it, sort of had the mentality of a miser who could not enjoy it. And so it just struck me as this very lawful, you know, each moment is its own seed. That's one of the reasons in, in Buddhist cultures that it said acts of generosity all all our wholesome acts, actually should be surrounded by thoughts of joy, of joyousness, because it makes the whole act that much more powerful. You know, the whole thing, (laughs) 
it's just so amazing because it's all lawful. You know, and, and that's one of the meanings of the word dharma. It means the law. It just means how things work. And a lot of our practice not only is the momentary purification of the mind through our awareness, but it's really a deepening and growing understanding of the law, of the Dharma. Because the more we understand it, the more we live in harmony with it. The happier lives we lead. Yeah, there's a whole lineage of Buddhas actually. In, in the text, it talks of seven previous, at least listed, seven or some number of previous Buddhas, and talks about uh, the Buddha t- to come, who is said to be Maitreya, who is now residing in in one of the Deva realms, the Tusita realm, waiting for you know the time to reborn, be reborn on Earth to become Buddha. Um, one of the things that people with you know, the, the strong powers of mind can do is actually visit this realm and, and listen to Maitreya uh, giving Dharma talks. <laughs> um, what, is, what is interesting 